0: I love the epistle, the second epistle to the Corinthians. Even though it is one of the most, uh, in terms of preaching, neglected uh, books in the New Testament. I think it's the fifth least commonly preached on book in the New Testament. um, Of the 27 books. And the second least popular book of the 13 epistles of Paul next to 2 Thessalonians I think it gets to the nitty gritty of the Christian life in a way that uh, no no other book can compare and uh, today we have a passage that I think is an example of that that um, kind of thing that you could just pass right by rather quickly if you're reading through Second Corinthians, but which is uh, filled with subtle treasures when we stop and really look. So today we've come to Second Corinthians 5 verses 11 and 12. We already preached on the first half of 11 last week, so even though I will read it, you know, even though it's important in the context. I'm going to focus on the second half of 11 and verse 12 this morning. This is the Word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Well, this passage gets us back to the heart of the reason Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. So let's remember the situation. Paul had originally come to Corinth and preached the gospel and believers had, had uh, you know, converts were made and people came together and a church was formed. And he stayed there approximately a year and a half in that first visit and ministered to the people. But after Paul left, some men who were Judaizers, if you remember what that means, infiltrated the church and began trying to influence the Corinthian believers to reject Paul as their apostle. When Paul got wind of this, he immediately went to Corinth for a visit, which turned out rather poorly. Then he wrote a severe letter to the Corinthians, a letter which he refers to In 2 Corinthians, especially in 2 verse 4, but which we don't have any longer. And after hearing it had a good effect, Paul followed up with another letter, a letter we call 2 Corinthians. In this letter, Paul is trying to undo the damage to his relationship with the Corinthians that was done by these men who had infiltrated the church. He's trying to undo the damage done to his reputation in their eyes by these men. The title of the sermon this morning, as you probably saw, was God Sees All, We Don't. Trying to cram a lot into a little space that fits on the website space for the Sherman title. In this passage, Paul reminds us that God sees everything, but that we humans don't. Now we know that God sees everything. If uh, you know, that's just one of the basic doctrines that Christians have believed down through the ages it says Paul says here in verse 11 what we are is known to god god knows us through and through we may be able to fool men we may even be able to fool ourselves but we can't fool god god sees everything about us he sees our thoughts he sees our motivations he sees our desires He sees everything. But humans, on the other hand, don't see everything. Sometimes we don't see what's there. And sometimes we think we see things which aren't actually there. In other words, sometimes we think we see things in people which are not at all accurate. They're a misconstruing of what is actually there in that person. And this is what is behind what Paul says at the end of verse 11. What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to you as well. Because Paul had been called directly by Christ and was never a part Of the company of the twelve disciples while Jesus walked on the earth. He was vulnerable to questions about the authenticity of his apostleship. And when the Corinthian church was infiltrated by these false apostles as Paul calls them. Who were enemies of grace. Who were trying to undermine the ministry of Paul. These men attacked the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship in whatever way they could, and used any argument they could think of. And the saddest thing was that their arguments had begun to win over the Corinthian believers. This is why Paul had written what is called his severe letter, which had convicted many of the Corinthians that they had been wrong. That they had misjudged Paul. You see, Paul knew that wise, mature Christians are able to be discerning. He knew that if they knew him the way God knew him, they would change their unkind opinion of him and would not be so influenced by the enchanting deception of these false apostles. So Paul wrote these letters hoping that the Corinthians would finally recognize that he was all about serving them, not serving himself. That he was striving to exalt them in Christ, not striving to exalt himself. And that his bold reprimands were motivated by his love for them. And by his passion for them to experience the full reconciliation with God through Christ. He wants them to be able to boast in him again as they once did. To be happy to have him as their apostle. The great apostle should not have to defend his apostleship he should not have to have he should not have had to hope that the Corinthians could see how he was motivated by zeal for Christ and love for them everything in his life and ministry sparkled with the truth of the authenticity of his apostleship he says in chapter 1 We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so toward you. His opponents had no ground to stand on. He was the epitome of humility. In fact, his humility was one of the things that his opponents criticized him about. And yet, Paul lovingly and willingly stooped to explain himself many times in his writings, especially in 2 Corinthians. Even when there was no basis for accusations against him, in love he was willing to explain himself and not stomp off in a huff offended that someone had the audacity To accuse him of something. In some ways, what we have before us is a pathetic sight. Here is the Apostle of Christ, the greatest missionary who ever lived, with the exception of Jesus himself. And probably the greatest Christian in history. Hoping and almost begging that these Corinthian believers would see his sincerity. When there wasn't even a shred of reason for them to doubt it. Paul had much more reason to be proud than any of us. But he was extremely humble. He put aside any spirit of defensiveness or touchiness. Clothing himself with love and forbearance and long-suffering. Paul's example here of love and patience and humility is something for all of us to be deeply grateful for. This is a gift of God for us. It shows that no first of all it shows that no matter how godly you are or how consistently you have proved yourself over time There will often be those who suspect your motives or even accuse you of malice. This shouldn't be surprising for this is the way our Lord Jesus was treated. There couldn't be a person more worthy of trust and respect and yet they constantly accused and attacked him. And he says to us, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. And he tells us how to respond. Even if there are enemies, he says, treat them with love. Even when we feel like we've been falsely accused... We must not pay back insult for insult, but bless those who curse us. And especially when there are fellow believers, we must be willing to fight for our relationship with them. Just like Paul did for his relationship with the Corinthians. We need to follow the example of Paul who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He pleads with them. He doesn't get offended. He doesn't attack. He reaches out to them. He keeps expressing love to them and assuring them of his motives. Also, brothers and sisters, we must be afraid of treating anyone else the way that these people treated Paul. We all have the potential of being arrogant and judgmental. We have to be very careful about not just how we treat others, but how we think about others. It's very easy for us to jump to premature conclusions about people instead of giving people a judgment of charity, thinking the best of them, giving them the benefit of the doubt. We don't see everything. And there are different ways to interpret the same evidence. And we need to be afraid of misinterpreting the evidence. We need to be afraid of making false judgments. Of judging others on the basis of appearances. Or on the basis of our impressions. Or on the basis of our past experiences. I'm a theory person. My mind is always working to try to come up with explanations about what happened and why and about what's motivating people, about how things work. And I, I'm just a, I'm a theory factory, my mind is. But I can say at 64 years of, old, of age that most of my theories prove to be wrong. So I have to be very careful about how seriously I take my own theories. They seem so true and right to me, but they often prove not to be. It's very important for people who know that God sees everything to remember that we don't. How much damage has been done in Christ's church by people jumping to unfair conclusions about others? How much damage has been done in Christ's church by people spreading their impressions of others around? Person one has a jaded view of person two. And when person one speaks to person three, His view of person two is obvious. And it's very easy for person three to adopt the same view, the same conclusions as person one about person two. I can easily fall into the trap myself. But we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer for the way we treated others. For the way that we thought about others. For the way we spoke to others. And for the way we spoke about others to friends and family. Why does Paul care so much about what the Corinthians think of him? Aren't Christians supposed to disregard what other people think? Paul is pleading with them to adjust their view of him because he knows he can do them no good if they think evil of him. If they constantly suspect his motives whenever they interact with him. He loves them. He wants to build them up in Christ. But he can't if they won't listen to him. And he knows that they won't listen to him if they have no regard for him. If they reject his apostleship. Think about parents. Excuse me. Think about parents. There is a sense in which you can't parent well if you're afraid of your child's disapproval. But when your child starts thinking that you don't care about him but just want to control his life you can't just accept that. You've got to fight to try to convince him of your love. That's a time when it is a sin to not care about what someone thinks of you. This is why Paul very much Wants the people in the Corinthian church to know that he ministers to them in sincerity not using trickery or deception one final point Paul refers to those trying to undermine him as those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart Earlier in this sermon, I said that one of the things Paul's opponents were critical of Paul for was his humility. That sounds very strange, but it's actually true. They claimed that Paul's style was too ordinary and not dynamic enough. They claimed he came across as weak when an apostle should be mighty and impressive and spellbinding isn't the way Paul describes these detractors eerily similar to the way many church leaders today operate it's all about marketing it's all about looking sharp it's all about putting on impressive programs. It's all about entertainment. It's all about giving customers what they want so they keep coming back. It's all about success. And it's all about looking successful. They boast about outward appearance and don't pay attention to what is in the heart. Christianity is, has down to the ages in every generation, been regularly hijacked for all kinds of earthly advantage. For instance, in the last generation or two, we've seen that Christianity can be very useful for making lots of money. It can also be useful for gaining wise, kind, supportive friends. They're very hard to find in the world. Even by people who don't really care about Christ. It can also be used to gain a name for oneself. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel. Where they were building this building to make a name for themselves. Man strives, you see. He desires to have a life that goes beyond his meager 70 years. And so he's tempted to try to do something to make a name for himself that will be remembered after he's gone. And so it is that many people try to use Christianity as a way to make a name for themselves. When the church is supposed to be all about honoring the name of the one whose name is above every name, I think some people accuse others of being insincere because down deep they believe everyone is insincere, they don't believe in sincerity. They don't believe in something called sincere love. And the reason they don't believe in sincere love is because they've never experienced it in their own hearts. They've never had sincere love. They think it's all just a game. They think it's all just a pursuit of earthly goals and pleasures. And so for them to except the existence of sincere love, would involve a condemnation of their own hearts. So they don't want to believe in love. But woe to those, to summarize a lot of Bible verses, woe to those who exploit Christ's church for their own earthly appetites. But we are all susceptible to boasting about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. It's easy for all of us to get wrapped up in how we look. For instance, I remember years ago when I realized that I had fallen into the trap of caring more about looking godly than I did about being godly much to my shame and embarrassment people judge by outward appearance but God judges the heart as we come to the Lord's Supper let us remember that it is a celebration of the one who was perfect love the one who was giving himself completely for the sake of others if we believe in Christ we believe in love because there he is the source of all true love for love as John says is of God and our joy and hope in life is that there really is someone who loves us and that love is unshakable And there's nothing that can separate us from that love. It's wonderful if that love is just a little bit reflected in the body of Christ. And God commands us over and over and over again, love one another. But the source of it all is in the Christ of love the Christ who was the supreme demonstration of love for God so loved the world that he gave his only son let us pray heavenly father forgive us for how Earthly concerns and attachments tear at our hearts and distract us from that which is eternal and far more real than anything we have going on in our lives down here. Oh Lord. Every one of us has sinned not only in obvious ways, but sinned in the ways that we think about other people, the ways that we speak about other people, the ways that we judge other people. We thank you, dear Lord, that you judge justly, for you know everything about us. And yet, Lord, knowing everything about us means that you know the depths of our sin. And yet, Lord, we're amazed that you still love us. That you loved us from eternity past and you knew at that time every sin we would commit and every blackness of our hearts. And yet still, it did not Erase your love for us. So now, dear Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we seek to do what you have required of us, what you have commanded of us, and we thank you that we can. And We pray, Lord, that as we do it, it wouldn't just be a ceremony for us but that we would be engaged with the living Christ in humbling ourselves, in confessing our sin, in taking hold of him, in trusting his promise of forgiveness, in crying out for his help and his power that we might go forth from this place filled with him. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.